Well, there is a military term that's called the gray zone. Some people call it the gray zone warfare. It's a military term that's used to describe the situation between two countries that are neither, they're not at war and they're not at peace. So it's a term that the military will use to describe the situation between these two countries. One of the defense secretary in Britain, um, Ben Wallace, he describes this loan, this, this area as the limbo between war and peace. A lot of countries have to deal with what is it like to live between war and peace. It's an awkward place to be because many times it's a place with a lot of uncertainty. But you need to be very strategic when your country is in this zone because if you're too aggressive, you can instigate a war. If you're too complacent, then nothing is going to change. So a lot of books have been written about the gray zone. A lot of conferences people talk about the gray zone because every military wants to make sure that they know how to navigate through this gray zone because it's going to be either... All right, I think I got it. All right, that was a little phew. All right, so each country that's dealing with the gray zone wants to be extremely careful because in this gray zone, there's a high degree of risk, there's a high degree of vulnerability, and there's also a high degree of uncertainty. You're not really sure what to do. Recently, one of my favorite cultural commentators, Mark Sayers, he's a pastor out of uh, Australia. He said that the church right now is in a gray zone. He said the church right now is experiencing a gray zone. And he wasn't talking so much that the church is between war and peace. But he said the church is between a decline and a renewal. He was saying that what you see right now in the church is an extreme decline or extreme renewal. On the one hand, you see a lot of people in the church have been giving up the truth. I've been saying, well, I'm not sure if I really believe in the Bible. I'm not really sure if it's that accurate, or I'm not sure if it's that relevant today. And then on the other hand, you have people that are finding great renewal in their relationship with God, that they're becoming more committed, that they're becoming more serious about their faith, and they're seeking God in even of a deeper way. So that's why Mark says right now we're in that gray zone in the church of navigating how do you deal with a church that's going very declining or a church that's having great renewal. And so as a church and as people that are part of a church, we too want to know how do we navigate through these difficult times? Because you want to be strategic. Because you want to be effective. And so for in churches, what we often do is we look into church history to find answers. How does a church deal when you're in this gray zone between decline and renewal? And we know oftentimes that in church history, some of the way they reacted to decline is kind of embarrassing. They didn't always do the right thing in the past. And so you can see why we want to be really strategic because once again, lives are at stake. Souls are at stake. People are at stake. So it's extremely important. The big question that you have right now is what do we do? What do we do next? Now I think it's pretty obvious that one of the things we do in a church is we cry out to God and ask Him for renewal. We ask God to bring restoration to our churches, but I think to be even more effective in that prayer, we have to remember Jesus' metaphor that he's called us to be salt and light. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches his followers, he says, you need to be 
like salt and light. The book of Matthew records one of the most famous sermons given by Jesus. In Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8, it's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gets up on the side of the mountain and he preaches to a big group of people. And in that message, he tells people what life is going to be like for them when they follow him. But he also gives a couple chapters to give an explanation. He gives a practicum on what life would look like and Jesus actually does the stuff that he talks about. So we see in this great message that Jesus gives to the crowd, he's telling them, what would life look like if you were a follower of Jesus? One famous theologian said that the Sermon on the Mount is a perfect standard of the Christian life. You want to understand what Jesus is calling you to? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and 8. You'll get a really good understanding of the invitation that Jesus gives. And at the end of Jesus' message is one simple question. And that is, do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Do you want to follow Jesus, yes or no? But see, Jesus is interesting. He doesn't look like a leader that's desperate for followers. Jesus doesn't make a bunch of compromises in his message. Instead, he raises the bar even higher. Jesus calls for his disciples. He says, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to expect a radical change in your life. John Stott says that Jesus calls his disciples to have an unconditional commitment of mind and will and life. It's pretty radical what Jesus is asking for. See, Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he's saying, your choice today is between obedience and disobedience. Jesus never gives an invitation to the crowd saying, well, you can sort of follow me. You can partly follow me for jesus it's all or nothing that's a pretty radical message that jesus gives so in the book of matthew in chapter 5 it starts with the Beatitudes. some of you are probably familiar with these first 12 verses where jesus tells the blessings that will happen for followers some of you are probably familiar with verse 4 where god says god will bless the poor and they or god will bless those who mourn and they will be comforted in verse 5, he says, He will bless the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Some of you are probably very familiar with these first 12 verses. But in then verse 13 and 14, Jesus does something that I don't think anybody saw coming. Jesus looks at the crowd and says, You will be the salt of the earth, and you will be the light of the world. Suddenly, in the midst of this uh, talking about Beatitudes, Jesus tosses in a metaphor. Listen to the words in Matthew 5 and 13 and 14. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as it is worthless. And then 14, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Now, if you're not too good with metaphors, you're not too sure what Jesus is saying, what Jesus just said is, if you follow me, your life is going to change in a radical way that you're going to become like salt and like light. Why salt and light? Why does he use these two words? Because the one thing that you know about salt and the one thing that you know about light is they both have an impact on whatever they come in contact with. And that's what Jesus is saying to this crowd today. If you become a follower of mine, you will have an impact on every single person you come across. 
See, Jesus is laying out his vision for the church, and he's laying out his vision for people, saying, if you follow me, you will have an impact on people in darkness. See, Jesus' message is pretty simple. That your life is going to be so dramatically changed by Jesus that other people are going to look at you, they're going to look at your life, look at how you're living your life and say, I want to be just like you. That's a bold, bold statement that Jesus is making. That I can transform your life so much that other people will look at you and say, I want to be just like you. See, what Jesus has called us to do essentially is that we would become his ambassadors. The plan is that people would look at us and say, I want to be like that. Jesus' plan is that we would influence culture through our actions, through our beliefs, and the way we show love and compassion to other people. Jesus never said you're going to influence culture by being mean or being judgy. He said, you're going to influence your culture by the love and compassion you show to other people. Jesus said, you're going to influence culture because you're going to be an example. But see, that invitation that Jesus is putting out there to become salt and light, that's, that's going to cost you something. That's not just an easy, sure, I'll do that. That is going to cost you something. It's kind of a hard to follow because you're going to have to give up the way you live your own life right now. If your ideology is it doesn't matter at all how I live my life, Jesus just confronted you with the truth that yes, it does matter how you live your life because your life is going to have an impact on somebody for the good or for the bad. See, Jesus confronts culture in a radical way by saying, in the kingdom of God, we're more concerned about others than concerned about ourselves." It's a pretty sobering call that Jesus has. But I think sometimes we forget that the burden of this calling is on Jesus. It's not on any of us. Jesus is the one who transforms. Jesus is the one who renews. Jesus is the one who heals and delivers and sets people free. All Jesus is asking for is a yes or no. Do you want to follow him or not follow him? Because if you say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, that's his job to make the transformation happen. He just needs all of us to surrender on a daily basis so the transformation can happen. So it should be absolutely no surprise at all if Jesus' mission is to transform his followers so much that they look just like Jesus. It should be no surprise at all that one of the enemy's main goals is to make us not look like Jesus. The enemy started that process in the Garden of Eden thousands of years ago where he came in that garden to try to make Adam and Eve not look like their maker. We've been created in the image of God to reflect God and that is what the enemy's plan is every single day. Not only did the enemy do that in the Garden of Eden, but he keeps on doing that today. And he did it 30 years after Jesus died on the cross. 
30 years after Jesus died on the cross, his half-brother Jude wrote the book of Jude. To describe exactly what was going on in the church is a lot of moral decline was entering the church. So listen as I read parts of Jude. Jude is one of those great books of the Bible. It's one chapter. It's hidden towards the back. It's one of the best little kept secrets in the Bible because I think a lot of people don't find it. It's right before Revelation. So if you need a good book to read, read Jude. One chapter. It's packed with a lot of good stuff. So let me start reading in verse 1. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all of you who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more peace, mercy, and love. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all times to his holy people. I say this because many ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 5 through 16, Jude reminds the readers and warns them about the destruction of these leaders who are not teaching the truth. I'm going to skip over that chunk today because I want to focus on the rest of this chapter. So I'm skipping over verse 5 through 16 where Jude clearly warns of the consequences that these people are going to have for being false teachers. Then we pick up in verse 17 and it says, But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their own ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. But you, but you, dear friends, must build each other up in the most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sin that contaminates their life. Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and who will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all times. In the presence and beyond all times, amen. This is a beautiful scripture where Job is writing to the church. Job had every plan or every intention of writing a probably a friendlier letter to the church, maybe an encouraging letter to the church. And now he finds that he needs to address false teachers who are teaching that it really doesn't matter how you live your life. The idea behind these false teachers is because the grace of God is so wonderful, he doesn't really care how you live your life. And Jude's job is to confront that false teaching. And the first thing that Jude says in, the, in chapter, verse 3 is you need to defend your faith. Other translations say you have to contend the faith. That beautiful word contend or defend is a beautiful word and it's a term that would be used in athletic competitions. 
The whole idea behind that word is that you must put everything into what God is calling you to do. That word uh, defend is a term that you use like be fully engaged. It's talking about an athlete who is in competition, that they must be fully engaged if they expect to win. It's a term that would be used that if an athlete is going to be participating, and let's say it's a basketball final championship, you would never expect the athlete to just walk across the court with his hands in his pockets, maybe looking at his phone occasionally. You don't expect that from an athlete who wants to win. Instead, you'd expect an athlete who wants to win to be fully engaged in the game. And that's what Jude is saying to the Christians. If you want to win, if you want to see success, if you want to be the salt and the light, you better engage. You better be all in. Because if you want to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to be all in. That's the first encouragement he's given to the church because Jude is very aware of the danger that the church is in right now. That the false teachers are teaching the exact opposite of the teachings of Jesus. And Jude has no problem calling out these false teachers. He doesn't mix words with them. He clearly says they are teaching the wrong. Jude goes so far to say they don't even have the Holy Spirit inside of them, which is another one's way of saying is they don't know Jesus. Jude has no problem calling out the sin in the church. He also has no problem calling out the consequences of these false teachers. He says there's two consequences that are going to happen. Number one, they're going to experience barrenness. And number two, they're going to experience punishment. And now when he's talking about barrenness, he's not talking about a lack of ability to have biological children. He's talking about a lack of ability to have an impact on anybody else for the positive. He's saying that you're not going to become salt and light if you go down this road that the false teachers are teaching. You will never have a positive impact on people, plus you will experience punishment. And so God in his compassion is having Jude write this letter to the church to wake them up. To say, you don't want to go down this path, but you want to go down this path that God has for you that he'll bring restoration and renewal in your life so you will become salt and life, light. So after this, we read in verse 20 and 21, kind of the, the heart that we're going to focus on in this, in this uh, message today, where Jude says, but you, dear friends, must build each other up in the most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're talking today about praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been in this wonderful series on the Holy Spirit as we anticipate in uh, a couple weeks that we'll anticipate Pentecost Sunday where we celebrate the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the church. So as a church and as a community, we're reading scripture every day that talk about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does, what the Holy Spirit does in our life. And so today we're going to focus on this little verse that says, but pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, we all want to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our goal as followers of Jesus. But you can't jump to verse 20 without taking serious verse 3 which he's saying, contend for your faith. Engage in your faith. That's step one if you want to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you've got to be actively engaged in being a Christian. And then in the beginning, and then in the beginning of verse 20, 
He has another instruction before he says, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, build each other up in the Christian faith. It's interesting. Some translations say, build yourself up in the Christian faith. Others say, build up others in Christian faith. So which one is it? Well, I decided we'll just take them both serious. We'll do both of them. Because I don't think you can go wrong with building yourself up or building somebody else up. So we're just going to extend that verse a little bit. See, the first thing is God says, build each other up. See, that means live in community. That lives with friends and family and participate. Come to church. Go to Bible studies. Go to parking lots at 545 in the morning. Do crazy things like that. Live in community because you need other people to encourage you. You need other people to speak word, life into your, words of life into your life. So we often talk about prophecy. We want to be a prophetic church. We want to understand the future and what God has for us in the future. But remember, when the Bible talks about prophecy in 1 Corinthians, it says, but the one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages others, and comforts them. I think sometimes we forget that our goal, our goal is to strengthen people, to encourage people, and comfort people with our words. I think sometimes prophecy, we look at it, sometimes, we sometimes think it's just about talking about the future, but prophecy is helping a person live now so they can actually get into their future that we need to encourage people right this moment so they can have a future and they understand the future that God has for them. I heard a pastor one time say that you don't encourage people with your thoughts. You encourage them with your words. But sometimes we forget to use our words to encourage people. So that's a little challenge for all of us. Let's take some time this week. Maybe you think a good thought about another person instead of just thinking, something nice about a person, maybe shoot them off a text or a phone call or an email. Let's do that this week. Let's encourage each other. Maybe when God brings up somebody in your mind or you're praying for somebody, just let them know that you're praying for them. That's encouraging to receive those texts and those emails because we all know life is hard and life can be difficult. So that's the first part. If you want to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, live in community and let other people encourage you. Then the second part of living in community is build yourself up. How do you mean, how do you build yourself up? See, what Jude's talking about is that we're responsible to take some initiative in our spiritual growth. We can't just sit back and expect something's going to happen. We can't sit back and expect our life to change. We have to be like that basketball player and you actually show up to practice. You actually have to give up some things in your life if you want to be a really good athlete. You're going to have to work really hard if you're going to be a really good athlete. If you want to win, you're going to have to give something up. And that's what it means to build yourself up. Give up some things and make different things priority. Make reading your Bible priority. Make spending time with Jesus a priority. Be intentional. Be engaged. See, the Bible tells us that your faith comes by hearing. What does it come by hearing? The Word of God, the book of Romans tells us. If you want your life to change, if you want your faith to change, you have to be around hearing the Word. And then, then, then Jude tells us if you're engaged in the Word and you're encouraging others and you're finding encouragement, then you can pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, historically, the term in the Spirit in Christian literature always had the idea of being under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
or under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the writer is saying. You want to pray under the authority of the Holy Spirit. You want to pray submitted to the Holy Spirit. And see, you're not going to be under the control of the Holy Spirit if you're not engaged with your walk with Christ, or if you're not building each other up. See, to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit means you pray according to God's will. And when you pray according to God's will, then you can expect to see his power in your life. So what is God's will? I think we all kind of wonder that sometimes. But see, that's where God tells us that he sent us the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's going to lead us into all truths. The Holy Spirit's going to reveal to us what's written in the word of God. But then the Holy Spirit will also help us pray according to God's will. And so when you're praying, totally submitted to God, totally submitted to the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead your life, then you can expect that prayer is going to change things because you're praying according to God's will. You'll see your life change. You'll see your circumstances change. You'll see people change because you're praying according to the will of God. And that's why God says it's so important that we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. But see, when Jude talks about praying in the Holy Spirit, it's not just an instruction of something we need to do. But he's also contrasting it to life in the flesh. See, a lot of the book of Jude is about living immoral lives. It's about doing things you really don't want to do. And so Jude's contrasting that, saying if you are living an immoral life and you want an antidote for that, then pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's going to lead you into all truths. The Holy Spirit's going to lead you into that place where you find the fullness of restoration and wholeness. See, praying in the power of the Holy Spirit is your defense against living in a moral life. So why is prayer so powerful? Because prayer is an admission of our complete dependence on God. That's why prayer is so powerful. It's because we're acknowledging that I'm weak. I can't do anything. I surrender. I give up and I'm going to allow God to do it because I can't do it on my own. See, another reason that prayer is so powerful because the book of Romans in chapter 8 verse 26 tells us that there's times when you're praying, you don't know what to pray. And the Holy Spirit says he'll pray for you. That's why prayer is powerful. Because there's times you pray, you don't even have to say a word. God will pray for you because he knows your needs. I don't think there's much more powerful than having God pray for yourself. And then there's another reason prayer is powerful because that same chapter of Romans tells us that there's sometimes you pray and God's going to give you the words to say. That's pretty incredible to think that you could be praying And you don't know what to say. And the power of God is going to give you the words to say. That's good. That's powerful. See, prayer is powerful because while you're praying, the Holy Spirit is entering into your prayers. The Holy Spirit's entering into this conversation you're having with God. How could you not be changed by praying? You got the Holy Spirit working in you. 
And that's what Jude is saying to this church. Hey, you've got to be careful. People are teaching you false things. So you know what I want you to do? Keep praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's going to protect you. That's going to encourage you. That's going to strengthen you. Keep praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing safer than you can do. And then he gives a third instruction in verse 21. He says, and then wait for Jesus. See, life's hard. Life's complicated. Sometimes we want to just give up and say, does it even matter? He's saying at times like this, wait for Jesus. Remember that Jesus is coming back. Remember this is only temporary on earth. But there's a whole eternity to look forward to. That's what we're going to be doing on Thursday morning. We're going to say, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. That's just encouraging to think about it. This craziness, that's not going to go on forever. We have something to look forward to. Jesus is coming back. That's how you can pray in the power of the Holy Spirit because you know things are going to change and things are going to be different. Last week I closed my message by talking about Gideon. I love this story about this Old Testament judge who became probably the most famous judge of the Old Testament. I want to talk a little bit about his story, but I'll kind of give a one-minute recap if you weren't here last week or you weren't listening to online last week. See, Judges 6, it's a beautiful book in the Old Testament, refers to, it's talking about another low point in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel were God's chosen people, and once again, the Israelites, well, they fell into sin. They kind of did that a lot. They're in the seven-year cycle of sin, and sooner or later, the Israelites got a little bit tired of that sin that was in their life. So they started crying out to God that he would rescue them and he would deliver them. See, that's called renewal. When God starts putting it on people's hearts to repent and live a different way. So God put it on their hearts to cry out to him for renewal. And what does God do? God's going to raise up a man who's going to work on behalf of the Israelites to see him set free. So God raises up this wonderful young farmer, this young man called Gideon. And the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon in uh, chapter 6, verse 12, and it says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then the Lord says to Gideon, he says, go in my strength because I'm going to use you to save Israel. See, I don't think Gideon expected anybody would call him a mighty warrior. Gideon pretty much thought he was insignificant. Gideon pretty much thought that his life didn't matter. Gideon would probably call himself just a loser that he'll not amount to anything. We know that because in verse 15, Gideon said to the angel, Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my family. Gideon said, I'm the least in my family. In other words, he said, I'm significant. I'll never do anything good. Politely, Gideon was saying to God, Why would you ever pick me? There's nothing good about me. And my guess is probably most people in this room or online, it probably felt that way at times. There's nothing good about me. There's nothing that special about me. There's nothing that I really could do. There's no contribution I could make. 
But yet what God said to Gideon is the same thing he would say to every single one of his followers. That you are a mighty warrior. And that you can make a big impact. Because Jesus is so confident that he can transform your life. And it's interesting to watch Gideon have this conversation with the Lord. Because on one hand, Gideon says, excuse me, I think you picked the wrong person. But in the next verse, we read that Gideon made an offering to the Lord. See, when God speaks to you, or when you start reading the Word of God, it starts changing you. It starts changing what you think about yourself, or it starts changing the identity that you have. And what is the first thing that Gideon did after he started to hear the voice of God? He made an offering to the Lord. He started to surrender his life to the Lord. And started saying, God, I, I kind of believe you. Would you do for me what you said you would do? Would you make me the warrior that you called me to be? See, there's a consistent theme throughout Scripture that when God speaks your identity, it will start changing your behavior and changing your life. And that's what's happening when you read the Word of God. It starts changing who you think you are and helps you to become the person God created you to be. See, God called Gideon to destroy the enemies of the Israelites and Midianites, but that didn't happen instantly. Gideon had to take a few steps in order to get to that place. See, the first thing that God said to Gideon is, they said, I want you to destroy the idols that your fathers have been worshiping. See, sometimes that's the first thing that God will say to each of us. You're going to have to give up something that you put in my place. Sometimes that's where we start with God is he's going to say, I want you to destroy something in your life that would separate you from a relationship with me. And Gideon did that. He was faithful to do that, but you know what? It almost cost him his life. But God used that as an opportunity to show Gideon that God could get him out of any hard situation. So now Gideon, a lot of stuff has happened. I've kind of skipped over, but now Gideon is there. And Gideon has to rescue the Israelites from the Midianites who have a huge and a powerful army. Gideon has an army of 32,000. Well, then God reduces that army by 22,000, so Gideon has 10,000. And then God reduces that army again, so Gideon has 300. Gideon has 300 men. How many are gathered against the Israelites? Well, Judges chapter 7 says there's more than you could count. They said all the enemies that were set up against Israel, they looked like a swarm of locusts. They were so many. And it said that the enemies of the Israelites had more camels than you could count. See, in the Bible, the camels are often a symbol of wealth. So what the Bible is giving us a description is that the people that were against the Israelites had money and they had power. Two things any powerful military force needs, money and power. Gideon had 300. That had to be pretty intimidating for Gideon to think, God, you've called me to do this, but I only got 300 and they have more than I can even count. But see, what God is going to teach Gideon that day is it doesn't matter how many are in your army. What matters is how big your God is. And God was going to show that to Gideon that day, that the size of the army doesn't matter. What matters is Gideon's obedience to God. Because in the end, what destroyed the Midianites 
was the obedience that Gideon had, not the size of the army. God had a unique strategy for the Israelites. What Gideon had to do was give each one of his men a ram's horn or like a trumpet and given them a clay jar with a candle inside or a torch inside. That was the strategy of war. These 300 men would make a circle around the enemies of the Israelites with a ram's horn and a little clay jar with a light inside. I would pretty much guess probably most of the army of the Israelites probably thought, this doesn't look too good. This actually might look kind of stupid. How do we expect to win a war with a ram's horn and a clay jar with a little candle inside of it? But that was the strategy that God had for the Israelites. And what happened was the nation of Israel, they surrounded the Midianites, and at midnight, they blew the ram's horn, and then they broke the clay jar, and all was left was the torch or the fire. And that was enough to send the enemies of the Israelites into complete and utter chaos, and the enemies of the Israelites destroyed themselves. Gideon, with his hundred little men, completely safe. Nothing happened to them. All the enemies set up against them, completely destroyed. How in the world does a little ram's horn and a little candle in a clay jar do that kind of stuff? See, that ram's horn is a symbol of a trumpet. It's also the symbol of the word of God. So at midnight, the instruction was to blow that shofar, to blow that ram's horn, which is speaking the word of God. And that little light, that little candle, represents the power of the Holy Spirit. And that little clay jar, that represents our life. And what was God's strategy? To speak the word of God and break the jar so that the light of the Holy Spirit could shine. That was the strategy. Speak the word of God. Allow your life to be broken before God in an act of humility, in an act of repentance, in an act of vulnerability, in an act of saying to God, I want to be completely dependent on you. And the only thing that's left is the light of the Holy Spirit. That's how Gideon defeated the army, by obedience. And that is what we're all called to do. We're called simply to speak the word of God. We're called to allow God to break our lives so we can be completely dependent on him and then all that's left is that light of the Holy Spirit inside of us. That's how we impact culture. That's how we live in this gray zone right now. We just get our little light shining. That will transform the world. That will transform this church. That will transform this city. That will transform your family. That will transform our nation. Allowing God to break us like that little clay pot 
so the light of the Holy Spirit in us can shine to the rest of the world. That's what we get to do. What a blessing. That God says, I am going to put my power in you in such an amazing way that you're more powerful than anything set up against you. That's why the Word of God can say, no weapon. that is formed against you will prosper. There's no weapon that's formed against any of us that can prosper when you're standing next to God. When you got the light of the Holy Spirit inside of you, that's pretty much a guaranteed victory. But we have to say yes to following Jesus. We have to say yes to following Jesus. Maybe some of you never made that commitment to saying yes to following Jesus. Maybe today would be the first day you say, I want to start following Jesus. Maybe some of you have been following Jesus, but you've been a little bit compromised in your following Jesus. And maybe today is a good day on Mother's Day to make your mother proud to say, I'm going to recommit to following Jesus how he told me to follow him. And you become like Gideon. You start taking little steps and little steps, and eventually you're going to have that big victory. But it starts in a little step. And sometimes that first little step is just saying, I want to follow Jesus. And then he's the one who's going to make it all change. The pressure's on him. It's not on you. The pressure's on Jesus.